0: Welcome to a special edition of the Best of the Left podcast. Technically, I'm taking a break from the show today. I'm not releasing a brand new episode because I'm at Netroots Nation 2013 in San Jose. It's an event I go to every year. It's, it's excellent and good to be here, but the logistics of trying to put together a new show are, are nightmarish. So instead, what I'm doing is I'm releasing an episode that is, I, I can essentially promise you that it's either new to you or if you heard this, uh, you should hear it again anyways. So everything that you hear today, besides me talking, was re- originally recorded on the 4th of July, 2006. And we're going to be hearing clips from both Rachel Maddow and Tom Hartman as they use the birthday of the country as sort of a, uh, you know, an excuse to take a look back and, and take a uh, time to step back from the stories of the day. And, and look at it from a more historical perspective. And, you know, so if you've heard the term evergreen, I mean, you know, like a tree stays green for a long time. You know, media content can also be evergreen. It means it stays good. I think that this content, especially from Rachel Maddow, is not just evergreen. It's like as if it literally bloomed again. She is talking in 2006 about the NSA spying scandal that broke at the time. And now, you know, with the new revelations of the NSA spying scandal of twenty thirteen, as well as you know, drone strikes on American citizens, and, and, and the whole variety of of ways that the executive branch has sort of taken power for itself, that a lot of people don't necessarily think it should have. What Rachel talks about in two thousand six will bring a lot of light on twenty thirteen, and and it just adds a whole new layer. You know, the last seven years have gone by. We'll add a whole new layer to what she's talking about. So I, I absolutely want everyone to stick around and listen to this show, not just skip ahead because you think it's a rerun. Uh, this is really excellent stuff. I wouldn't be playing it otherwise. So now the show will start as normal. Of course, this program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoflef.com. Welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast We'll clip today from the Rachel Maddow show back when she was on the radio and the Tom Hartman program. Get ready for the time warp as we go back to the 4th of July, 2006, and stay tuned at the end as I ask uh, what can be done going forward to uh, deal with the problems discussed in the show.
1: Uh, our third ever special show. Uh, I'm sure you can already guess what the topic is. I feel alone in this. But The thing that I have been obsessing about alone, the thing that I think is secretly driving some of the most important headlines in the news these days, but nobody is talking about it, is, uh, well, it's Iran-Contra. I know it sounds weird. Um, it's an 80s scandal. Actually, uh, as of as of this winter, as of this late fall, we will be coming up in the 20-year anniversary of Iran-Contra. But on July 4th today, on the country's birthday, I think that flashing back to a couple of important things about Iran-Contra, more than anything else I know in the day-to-day headlines these days, getting a little Iran-Contra refresher. And kind of doing a where are they now in terms of what's happened to some of the characters and some of the ideas that were exposed during Iran-Contra. Looking back on what happened then 20 years ago with the lens of what has happened since and what's going on in the government right now, more than anything else I know of right now, can help explain the big picture the 15-second explanation, the big, scary idea, the one thing that is most wrong with the Bush administration, what is wrong with this current form of republicanism that is ascendant in government today. It's like a, it's uncanny. It's like a a little Rosetta Stone decoding everything that's been happening lately on the big picture issues in the Bush administration. All these things that seem unconnected, you can tie them all To Iran-Contra and through that, through that lens, through using Iran-Contra as a filter, really get a very clear calibrated check, a very clear calibrated look at what is really going on with the government and the real magnitude of what they're trying to change about who we are as a country. A little story about it. A little example. The NSA spying scandal. The government, you know, listening in on our phone calls without getting a warrant, right? One of the things that I've always thought was was most important about this story, and I've been covering it uh, from even before the New York Times busted out their expose last December, one of the things that always seemed to be absolutely key to me to understanding why the NSA story was important was that the Bush administration had the opportunity to do this thing legally, to do what they did in the NSA spying program without violating the law without violating the law that says you need a court order. They could have done it legally. They had the chance to do it legally. A Republican senator, uh, Mike DeWine of Ohio, before the whole NSA spying scandal thing came to light, in 2002, Mike DeWine proposed legislation four years ago that, that would have amended the FISA Act to allow the NSA to listen in on calls without a warrant. He proposed legislation that would have made legal what we now know they were already doing illegally. At that time, four years ago, the Bush administration told Congress that they were not in favor of changing that law. They advised against it. They said no. The Bush administration knew at that time that they were doing this illegal program. They had the chance to do it legally without anybody having ever found out about it, and they asked instead for Congress not to act To make what they were doing legal. They preferred to do it secretly. They preferred to do it illegally. In violation of laws. In violation of the FISA law that was passed by Congress. Why? Why would they prefer to act illegally over acting legally? Why would they prefer to act on their own accord against the wishes of Congress than actually have Congress make what they were doing legal? Why? Back in December... Right after the New York Times ran the NSA spying story that broke open this huge scandal, on December 20th, this past December, Dick Cheney was flying on Air Force Two around the Middle East. Uh, uh, If you look at the White House transcript of this discussion on December 20th, it says that he was on his way to Oman when Dick Cheney decided to have a rare back and forth with the reporters on his plane. Reporters wanted to ask him about the spying scandal. He was in the rare mood to talk. And he told the reporters, he volunteered, without being led into this in any way, that if they wanted to understand his view of government, why he thought the NSA thing was okay, if they wanted to understand his orientation to government, Cheney said they should go read his take on Iran-Contra. Random, right? That was 20 years ago. It's such a random thing for him to bring up but he literally told reporters go find this obscure minority report that I wrote he said nobody's ever read it but it's my basically he said it's, it's my it's my philosophy of government and and we spelled it all out right there in 1987 when I was a Republican congressman. I was the top Republican on, on the committee investigating Iran-Contra. And nobody's ever read that thing. But if you ever want to know what I'm trying to accomplish in government, if you want to know why I think this NSA spying thing is okay, and it's totally central to what I believe about government, then go read this report. Back in 1987, the Democrats were in control of Congress. And Congress formed a joint committee, both the House and the Senate, uh, both Republicans and Democrats. Well, remember those days, right? Uh, they formed this committee to, to investigate the Iran-Contra scandal. Cheney, vice chair of the committee. He was a congressman, the ranking Republican on the committee. And, e- you know, even if you don't personally remember Oliver North testifying on TV that summer 20 years ago, you probably know just the basics about the scandal, right? The Contras were rebels in Nicaragua. They were anti-communist rebels. And the Reagan administration... Uh, I was having a little love affair with the Contras. The Reagan administration had a fetish, generally, for arming and training anti-communist guerrilla groups. It was kind of a, a rent, rent-a-death-squad Cold War foreign policy. We propped up dictators and death squads and thugs and monsters secretly to stop the tide of communism from lapping at our shores, to not give the Soviets a beachhead in South America. That's what they did, right? Kind of, kind of like what we're doing in Somalia and Pakistan and places today, if you replace the word communism with terrorism. In the 1980s, Reagan's plan to support the Contras was exposed. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that the CIA had been secretly mining, literally putting mines uh, in the harbor in, in Nicaragua, which was not... Right. And Congress said, you know, Reagan, we know that you are desperate to fund these contras. We know you love nothing more than to arm the death squad, guys. But you cannot just unilaterally do this without telling anyone else in government. You can't lie about whether or not you're doing this. You have to pretend you yourself, Ronald Reagan, are not uh, a South American dictator. And we, your American Congress, say we say that you can't fund the contras. You can't do it. You can't mine Nicaragua's harbors. You can't send them tanks and fighter jets. You can't airdrop them M-16s. You can't. You can't have the CIA do it secretly. You can't have Oliver North do it privately in his pants. You can't. You can't. The U.S. government is more than just the president. Congress says no, and we make the laws. So, of course, the Reagan administration went and did it anyway. <laughs> but the, but they knew that Congress was was, was not enthusiastic about this prospect. So they had to find some way of keeping it all off the books, even more off the books than just having the CIA do it. Where can they get the money to fund the Contras? From another little illegal deal the Reagan administration had going on secretly on the side, selling millions of dollars worth of Hawk missiles and anti-tank missiles to Iran. About $30 million worth, more than more than half of the money that Iran secretly paid for that secret weaponry we weren't supposed to be selling them, more than half of the money they spent on it got sent to the Contras. That's what the Iran-Contra investigations were investigating. An administration that broke the law secretly in order to do stuff that they were explicitly banned by law from doing. That's what Congress was investigating. Dick Cheney was the senior Republican on that committee. What that committee found, what Dick Cheney dissented and said, which he now says is the foundation of his whole view of government, will blow your mind.
2: What you want? Now you can hardly stand it, though.
3: Up and down the East Coast, building, buying, chartering, small private ships to sail to other parts of Europe or India to buy tea below the prices. The East India Company was setting in the United States in 1773, today the 4th of July, celebrating the Declaration of Independence. The war was really already on, on July 4th, 1773. The shooting war had already begun. And it really traced back to that... That uh, late autumn, early winter night in 1773, when a group of anti-globalization protesters decided to take on the world's largest military machine and the world's largest transnational corporation. You recall the Tea Act of 1773? A lot of us studied it in school. As the Encyclopedia Britannica, the British Encyclopedia, points out in their their online edition, the 2001 online edition, the 1773 Tea Act was a legislative maneuver by the British Ministry of Lord North to make English tea marketable in America by helping the East India Company quickly sell 17 million pounds of tea stored in England. End of quote. This was a tax cut. The Tea Act of 1773 that caused the American colonists to scream no taxation without representation was a corporate tax cut. I actually tracked down a copy of the only surviving eyewitness report of the Boston Tea Party. It's published in 1834, only once, by George Robert Twelfthree Hughes who was actually there. He was a teenager. He was a member of the, well, here's the title of the book, Retrospect of the Boston Tea Party with a Memoir by George R.T. Hughes, a survivor of the Little Band of Patriots Who Drowned the Tea in Boston Harbor in 1773. He waited 50 years to publish his story because they'd all sworn an oath of silence because what they had done could get all of them thrown in prison. His is the only first-hand account that we have. And he you know, he tells the story of this, and it's, it's really quite remarkable. He says the Tea Act, it was this giant corporate tax cut, he says the East India Company, I'm quoting now from George Hughes, who was there at the Boston Tea Party. He says the East India Company, however, received permission to transport tea free of all duty, it's free of all taxes, from Great Britain to America allowing it to wipe out its small competitors and take over the tea business in all of America. Hence, it was no longer the small vessels of private merchants who went to vend tea for their own account in the ports of the colonies, but on the contrary, ships of an enormous burthen that transported immense quantities of this commodity. The colonies were now arrived at the decisive moment when they must cast the die and determine their course. He talks, he talks then about how there were actually folks in Britain who were encouraging America to separate. And then he says, The first, the first constant confrontation between the colonists and the corporation appeared as if it would happen in Pennsylvania and New York. At Philadelphia, writes Hughes, Those to whom the teas of the East India Company were intended to be consigned were induced by persuasion or constrained by menaces to promise on no terms to accept the proffered consignment. At New York, Captain Sears and McDougall, daring and enterprising men, effected a concert of will against the East India Company between the smugglers, the merchants, and the Sons of Liberty, who had all joined forces and in most cases were the same people. Pamphlets suitable to the conjecture were daily distributed and nothing was left unattempted by popular leaders to obtain their purpose. End of quote. The broad consensus here was that the boycotts and acts of civil disobedience would be enough to make the British rescind the tax breaks and the rebates that they were giving the East India Company so that it could sell tea below the market value and wipe out its small entrepreneurial competitors. But as newspapers began to expose the way the East India Company had used monopoly control in other nations, where it had put all the local small companies out of business, anger arose. Consider, for example, this pamphlet which appeared on trees and buildings all over Philadelphia and Boston in the fall of 1773. It was titled The Alarm and signed by an enigmatic patriot who only called himself Rusticus. To this day, we have no idea who who Rusticus actually was. He said, are we in like manner to be given up to the disposal of the East India Company, who now have the assurance to step forth in aid of the minister to execute his plan of enslaving America? Keep in mind, this is a corporate enslavement of America they're talking about. Their conduct in Asia, he's talking about the East India Company, their conduct in Asia for some years past has given simple proof how little they regard the laws of nations, the rights, liberties, or lives of men. They levied war, excited rebellions, dethroned lawful princes, and sacrificed millions for the sake of profit. The revenues of mighty kingdoms have centered in their coffers. And these not being sufficient to glut their avarice, they have by the most unparalleled barbaries. Barbarities, excuse me, extortions and monopolies stripped the miserable inhabitants of their property and reduced entire nations to indigence and ruin. Fifteen hundred thousand, it is said, perished by famine in one year. Not because the earth denied its fruits, but because this company and their servants engulfed all the necessities of life and set them at so high a price that the poor could not purchase them. So you get it. The Patriots in 1773, who stood up to this huge multinational corporation, the East India Company, and the giant army and navy that backed it up—the British, the, you know, the, the British war machine—that they were saying, "Enough! Enough! We are not going to be to be serfs. We're not going to be vassals any longer." In in Boston. George Robert 12.3 Hughes wrote, The general voice declared the time was come to face the storm. Now is the time to prove our courage or be disgraced with our brethren of the other colonies who have their eyes fixed upon us and will be prompt in their succor if we show ourselves faithful and firm. He says this was the voice of the Bostonians in 1773. The factors who were to be the consignees of the tea were urged to renounce their agency, but they refused and took refuge in the fortress. And there's the, 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 the company that was supposed to receive the tea said, hey, we're still going to take the tea. So he writes, a guard was placed on Griffin's Wharf, Wharf, near where the tea ships were moored. It was agreed that a strict watch should be kept, that if any insult should be offered, the bell should be immediately rung, and some persons all ready to bear intelligence of what might happen to the neighboring towns and to call in the assistance of the country people. May 27, 1773, Rusticus published a pamphlet, Resolve, therefore, nobly resolve, and publish to the world your resolutions, that no man will receive the tea, no man will let his stores or suffer the vessel that brings it to moor at his wharf, and that if any person assists at unloading, landing, or storing it, he shall ever be deemed an enemy to his country, and never be employed by his fellow citizens. In October 27, 1773, A new edition of The Alarm, Rusticus, It hath now been proved to you that the East India Company obtained the monopoly of that trade by bribery and corruption, that the power of this obtained they have prostituted to extortion, and other the most cruel and horrible purposes the sun ever beheld. On the 28th of November, 1773, writes Hughes, the ship Dartmouth with 112 chests arrived. The next morning after, the following notice was widely circulated. Friends, brethren, countrymen, that worst of plagues that it does to tea has arrived in this harbor. The hour of destruction, a manly opposition to the machinations of tyranny, stares you in the face. Every friend of his country to himself and to posterity is now called upon to meet in Faneuil Hall at 9 o'clock this day, at which time the bells will ring to make a united and successful resistance to this last worst and most destructive measure of administration. So here now we're moving into December of 1773. It's the 16th of December. This the and now, if you go back and you read Jefferson's writings prior to this date, he was he had for example he had written an, uh, a piece that was published in early 1773 called the Rights of, as, as are called, the, the Rights of British Americans. Or, you know, it had a longer title than that. But essentially it was a, how to be a good citizen of England or of the United Kingdom while living here in North America. There was not a large consensus in favor of separation from England. This was the event that brought it about the Boston Tea Party. So Robert Hughes, Robert Hughes, he writes and he was there. Again, he was, a, te- he was a, a teenager. He was a member of the group who threw the tea into the harbor one of only two people that we actually know was there. He says, Things thus appear to be hastening to a disastrous issue. The people of the country arrived in great numbers. The inhabitants of the town assembled. This assembly, which was on the 16th of December, 1773, was the most numerous ever known. There, having, there being more than 2,000 people from the country present. Then it was resolved that the tea should be returned to the place from whence it came in all events, and no, no duty paid, paid thereon. The arrival of other cargoes of tea soon after increased the agitation of the public mind, He goes, on finding, no measures were likely to be taken, either by the governor or the commander or owners of the ship, to return their cargoes. At 5 o'clock, a vote was called for the dissolution of the meeting and obtained. The Boston Tea Party was on. And thus began the separation of the United States of America from the United Kingdom. All brought about because a multinational corporation was wiping out small companies in North America, all because of the economic, essentially, prostitution of a government to a huge multinational corporation, all because the government had been taken over for all practical purposes by this huge corporation, the government of England, and the and the, the satellite governments here in what was then the colonies, the British colonies. And the patriots said no. We want a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Not of the people, not of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. And that's what they thought they were creating in this nation.
2: But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be? All right. All right. All right. You say you're not a real son.
4: The fact of the matter is that there's nothing I can say that would make the situation right. I was stubborn in my pursuit of a policy that went
3: astray. The other major issue of the hearings, of course, was the diversion of funds
5: to the Nicaraguan Congress. Colonel North, Admiral Poindexter, believed they were doing what I would have wanted done, keeping the democratic resistance alive in Nicaragua.
3: I believed then, and I believe now, preventing the Soviets from establishing a beachhead in Central America. Since I have been so closely associated with the cause of the Congress, the big question during the hearings was whether I knew of the diversion.
1: Yes, indeed, that, that was a big question, Mr. President. Welcome back to a very special edition, a very special 4th of July edition of the Rachel Maddow Show here on Air America Mornings. Uh, we're standing back today. We're standing back 20 years and squinting at today's headlines uh, and finding that that some really important stuff in today's news is remarkably easier to understand from that distance. You know, you can hear in that little clip there in Ronald Reagan's defense there, you can hear a little bit of the George W. Bush playbook, can't you? You know, you don't, you kind of vaguely apologize, but you never really apologize for anything. You cast even your failings, your stubbornness as some sort of perverse personal virtue. And then you immediately go from that to scaring people. Sure, I was stubborn, my fellow Americans, but there are communists on beachheads down there. It's just the parallels, but... There are more parallels, there's more to the connections between this scandal 20 years ago and today's headlines than just the rhetorical connections, right? The Iran-Contra investigations 20 years ago were looking into an administration that had broken the law secretly in order to do stuff that they were explicitly banned by law from doing, breaking the uh, Iranian arms embargo to sell weapons to Iran, uh, breaking the Boland Amendment, a a law that had been passed by Congress that said you you can't support the Contras. They wanted to do both of those things, and uh, they they went ahead and did it, even though they knew it was clearly against the law. And and this joint House-Senate committee found, um, basically, their, their findings can be summarized as follows, quote, The common ingredients of the Iran and Contra policies were secrecy, deception, and disdain for the law. A small group of senior officials believed that they alone knew what was right. Administration officials repeatedly evidenced disrespect for Congress's efforts to perform its constitutional oversight role in foreign policy. The idea of a monarchy was rejected here 200 years ago, and since then, the law, not any official or any ideology, has been paramount. Those are All direct quotes from the uh, the findings of the investigation into Iran-Contra. That's what the committee found when they looked into Iran-Contra. Dick Cheney, the ranking Republican, the ranking minority member on that committee, disagreed, filed a dissenting minority report, which said that the problem in Iran-Contra was not that the president broke laws that Congress had written. In Dick Cheney's mind 20 years ago, the problem, the real crime in Iran-Contra was that Congress had passed laws in the first place that deigned to say what the president could do. The guy who is currently sitting in the east wing of the White House. We know he's unpleasant. We know he told Pat Leahy to go F himself. We know he, sh- he shot a lawyer in the face. But the thing that I think we have forgotten about Dick Cheney, that he has personally been trying to remind us of himself by repeatedly bringing up Iran-Contra in recent months to explain himself, The thing that we are just not grasping about Dick Cheney, the ideological and legal engine of this administration, is that he is beyond radical in terms of what he thinks this government should be. He was radical then, he's radical now, but boy, you can see it clearly then when nobody was really paying attention to him. There is a guy driving the most important policies of the U.S. government now, the policy engine of the White House, the most powerful vice president in history, who has openly advocated for 30 years that the Congress is a suggestion box, that the president is a king who answers to no one, that there is no law that can constrain the men who sit in the executive offices at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And he's one of them now. We need to recalibrate our sense of how crazy the Bush-Cheney plans are for changing the American government. And the best way to do that is to look at what these guys said were their plans at a time when no one was paying attention to them because they were not mincing words at that time. They said exactly what they wanted to do. And in the intervening decades, they have set about doing it. Look at your
2: young men fighting. Look at your women.
3: 56 people signed the Declaration of Independence on this day 230 years ago. It's also, by the way, the day some years later, within a few hours of each other, that John Adams, the second president of the United States, and Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, both died. Jefferson died about two hours before Adams, although Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still lives. They had been close friends in the early days, they were, they were, They worked to to bring about the American Revolution. They then became political enemies. Adams was a staunch, what we call a conservative in today's parlance, a a Federalist at the time. Jefferson was what was called a Republican then. He founded what was the Democratic-Republican Party, which in the 1830s dropped the word Republican from its name and is still today known as the Democratic Party, the longest-lasting, oldest political party in the history of civilization. The Democratic Party, founded by Thomas Jefferson. The 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence politicians, doctors, Protestant ministers, merchants, nine of them were farmers. By today's standards, none of them were truly rich. Land didn't have that much value back then. You'll recall that uh, both George Washington and Thomas Jefferson Jefferson died in bankruptcy. Washington died without, he didn't have enough money to free his slaves, which was one of his most ardent wishes when he died. The signers wrote, even John Hancock, by the way, who was the wealthiest of all of them, was, you know, in today's money, worth maybe five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars. He was not rich. He was not Bill Gates wealthy. These men were the most idealistic and determined among the colonists. When they, at the very end of the Declaration of Independence, they they wrote, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And this was just a simple statement of fact. The day they signed that document, 230 years ago today, each legally became a traitor and was sentenced to death for treason by the legal government that controlled their lands and their homes. As Ben Franklin pointed out, they stood at a point of no return, and indeed... To quote Franklin, indeed, we must all hang together. Otherwise, we shall most assuredly hang separately. When Rhode Island's Stephen Hopkins signed the document, he remarked to his friend William Ellery that, quote, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. But Virginia's Benjamin Harrison, who weighed nearly 300 pounds, commented to Massachusetts's Eldridge Jerry, a short, thin man, quote, with me, the hanging will be over in a minute, but you'll be dancing on the air for an hour after I'm gone. John Hancock signed his name large enough that the king could, quote, read my name without glasses and can now double the reward, end quote, of 500 pounds that had already been put on Hancock's head for sedition. Just six months later, John Hancock would lose his newborn daughter to complications of childbirth arising from his wife's fleeing the oncoming British Army. Thomas Nelson of of Virginia, Signed the Declaration of Independence when he and George Washington attacked the British in Nelson's hometown. The British had seized Nelson's house. British General Cornwallis taking it as his headquarters, and he encouraged George Washington to attack his own home. The house was destroyed, and after the war, Nelson, unable to repay loans he'd taken out against it to help finance the revolution, lost his property and died in poverty at the age of 50 signer William Elry of Rhode Island similarly lost everything as did Virginia's Carter Braxton and Benjamin Harrison Pennsylvania's George Clymer New York's Philip Livingston Georgia's Lyman Hall and New Jersey's Frank Francis Hopkinson everyone died in poverty each one of those men as a result of having signed the Declaration of Independence 230 years ago this day the British destroyed New York's Francis Lewis' property and threw his wife into such a hellhole of a jail that she died there two years later Three of South Carolina's four signers, Edward Rutledge, Thomas Hayward Jr., and Arthur Middleton, were captured by the British and held in a filthy, unheated prison and brutally tortured for over a year. New Jersey farmer John Hart's wife died shortly after he signed the Declaration of Independence, and his 13 children were scattered among sympathetic families to hide them from the British and conservative loyalists. John Hart never again saw his children, dying alone and racked with grief three years later. Altogether, 17 of the 56 men who met in that room to sign the Declaration of Independence were entirely wiped out by the war they declared. New Jersey State Supreme Court Justice Richard Stockton took his wife and children into hiding after he signed the Declaration, but conservatives loyal to the Crown turned them in. He was so badly beaten and starved in the British prison that he died before the war was over. His home was looted and his wife and children lived the rest of their lives as paupers. Altogether, nine of the men in that room died and four lost their children as a direct result of putting their names to the Declaration of Independence. Every single one of those 56 men had to flee his home, and after the war, 12 returned to find only rubble. After the war was over and the conservatives had fled to Canada and England, the survivors of the new American nation met to put into final form the legal structure of the nation they had just birthed. It was not to be a nation of cynical, selfish libertarians who believed the highest value is individual freedom and independence from society or that the greatest motivator was greed. It was not to be a kingdom ruled by a warlord elite. It was not to be a theocracy. It was to be, as Ben Franklin said, a republic, if you can keep it.
1: The idea of a power-mad presidency certainly did not start with the Iran-Contra affair in the 1980s, but, uh, b- but that affair sure did bring it into nice, sharp relief for those of us who are concerned about this factor and this drift and this drive. In the George W. Bush presidency uh, we're joined on the phone now by John Nichols. John is the DC correspondent for the Nation magazine. He's the offcomer offcomer. He's the author of a forthcoming book called The Genius of Impeachment, which uh, is due out this fall. John Nichols, thanks for joining us.
4: It's a great pleasure to be with you on this holiday
1: uh, indeed do you uh, John, I know you've been writing about impeachment. Do you think that Ronald Reagan should have been impeached 20 years ago for for breaking the law in the Iran-Contra scandal?
4: There's absolutely no question he should have been impeached.
1: On what grounds, and why would that be politically important if that had happened?
4: Two very separate questions, but both very critical. On what grounds? The Congress of the United States passed a resolution specifically telling the president not to give money to the Contra forces in Central America.
1: Yeah, they couldn't have been clearer I mean,
4: it was, it. There, this, is, this is one of those rare moments. It be like your mom would say, If the sun shines tomorrow, you can't go out. You wake up, the sun's shining, and you go out, right? She specifically told you not to. (laughs) Congress specifically told Ronald Reagan and his entire administration uh, that you can't do this. Yeah. Well, they did it, and they did it in the most remarkable of ways. They violated the uh, sanctions against Iran, and members of the Reagan administration, going right up to the vice president, Mm -hmm. George Bush, uh, arranged for arms sales to the Iranians, who were at war with somebody we liked better at the time, Saddam Hussein.
1: Now, why, I, why does that name ring a bell? Isn't that funny? Yeah.
4: <laughs> and so we arranged arms sales to the Iranians, and then with the profits from those arms sales, we then gave the money to the country. And there is certainly plenty of evidence to suggest that Ronald Reagan was part and parcel of the process.
1: And his defense was that he didn't know it was happening, basically.
4: It, it, but the thing is, one of the things that's lost to history is that Reagan initially said, I don't know anything about this. And then, famously, months later, when everything had been revealed, he went on national television and admitted that he was wrong, that he, in fact, had, that it had happened, Mm -hmm. and that he had been party to information regarding it. And what happened, what happened was an interesting thing. Reagan was at the end of his presidency. He was virtually disempowered. In 1986, Democrats had taken control of the Senate back, and there were a lot of people who said, look, this is an old man. He's obviously suffering from the, you know, the initial stages of Alzheimer's. And so you ended up in a situation where a lot of Democratic members of Congress said his presidency is almost done. He's disempowered. He's an old man. Let's not hold him to account. Now, the problem with that was I, I, I'm sympathetic to all those things. But here's the problem. The presidency is not a man. It is an office. And it is an office that is ongoing. And when it is not held accountable in one administration, it becomes unaccountable in future administrations.
1: So you think that by essentially letting Reagan off the hook, even if it had been for for laudable or or sentimental reasons or whatever it was, political calculations, by letting Reagan off the hook, it basically um, legitimized this type of law breaking by the executive for future presidencies.
4: It legitimized the notion that the presidency could seize virtually full control of foreign policy and military policy from Congress. Congress had made its intentions clear. The president had violated them. Uh, Those violations were clearly at odds with the Constitution and the Congress let it pass.
1: There were about four separate investigations into Iran-Contra, and the big joint House-Senate investigation into Iran-Contra was a very strong statement condemning what had happened and saying that this very clearly broke the law and talking about all the things that were wrong with it. But nothing, nothing happened I mean, to anybody whose name we remember as anything other than a joke.
4: Well, that's the deal. I mean, I'll remind you that uh, that whole set of hearings in the big House-Senate investigation came down to what was best described by a New York Times reporter as a firm slap on the wrist. Hmm. And the end result is is very significant here because there was one member of Congress, the former congressman from uh, San Antonio, Texas, Henry B. Gonzalez.
1: Gonzalez was a Democrat?
4: He was a Democrat. He was a remarkable man, a child of uh, Mexican immigrants who had grown up in the barrio of San Antonio, gone to law school at night. And ended up as a, you know, very senior Democrat in Congress. When everybody else was letting Reagan off the hook, Henry B. Gonzalez marched to the floor of the House, and he put down a, a very thorough set of impeachment resolutions. Then he said, if we do not hold Ronald Reagan to account, we will see future presidents do far worse. Hmm. And they will look back to this moment, and they will say, see, the Congress gave us the approval. The Congress essentially set a precedent that presidents can do as they choose. That
1: even when you have not gotten away with it, even when you have been caught red-handed, even when you have been exposed, you will still not be punished for it. Then right. that sets a standard for people who will, A, want to try to get away with it, but know that even when they're caught out, nothing will happen. This is why the Iran-Contra scandal and the legacy of it for me is becoming so central to the way I understand what's happening right now. Because if you think about, John, if you think about with what happened with that Iran-Contra investigation, on the one hand, have Henry Gonzalez whose name is almost lost to history come out and say we need to look at this precedent that this is setting for future presidencies and see the danger here on the other hand you have the minority report of mm-hmm. the republicans in the house led by Dick Cheney coming out with their minority statement saying not only should Reagan not be punished here but congress should never have passed a law that says anything about foreign policy in the first place and this is only the province of the of, of the president and, and Congress has no business even talking about this, let alone investigating it. And now you see that Henry Gonzalez is lost to history. Dick Cheney, with that <laughs> random, obscure, obscenely off the charts perspective, is vice president. And you see how much we have been twisted.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, this is this. where we tie all the pieces together. Yeah. Dick Cheney maneuvered himself into that position as, as writer of the Minority Report. And the important thing is that Dick Cheney said in that minority report that Congress shouldn't punish Reagan, but also that the powers of the presidency should be expanded as regards foreign policy. He has held to this view very strongly. When he entered the White House in 2000 as Vice President of the United States, and really effectively as President of foreign policy, he moved immediately to do three things that were absolutely critical, to make foreign policy decision-making fully secret. To, to close down all sorts of information on what they were doing. right? To dramatically expand the independent intelligence gathering outside the CIA. And finally, and very specifically, the very first cabinet meeting, as we were told by Paul O'Neill, to prepare for a war with Iraq. Yeah. When you put these pieces together and you realize that this is the man who was at the center of Iran-Contra, he saw how much danger there was for going way off the deep end, really expanding presidential powers to extreme points, he knew that Congress was not likely to challenge him, and he got in there and did what he thought Reagan should have done, which was much more than Iran-Contra.
1: Sure. Not to just uh, not to apologize, not to avoid getting caught, but simply to do whatever you want and then assert your right to be there once you're found out.
4: And now we're lost in this, we're, we're sort of stuck in this uh, Alice in Wonderland world where uh, Dick Cheney's vision has become dominant. Mm-hmm. And there are many people, including many Democrats, who sort of accept a playing field, a post-Iran-Contra playing field, that says it would be absurd for Congress to assert itself. It would be just not going to happen, right? Right. Well, that's not as it should be. The founders said at the Constitutional Convention that they wrote the Constitution, one of them said this specific quote was, with the intent to chain the dogs of war. They wanted the Constitution to make it virtually impossible for a president to launch a war, be it aggressive or even defensive, without the full approval of Congress, not merely at the time of declaration. throughout the process and that is an American legacy an American legacy of another July 4th Mm -hmm. that has been stolen from us it was stolen it's been stolen in many pieces at many times but if you wanted to see the critical point at which we were really rocked it was during that Iran-Contra fight
0: So there you go. Welcome back to the present. I, I certainly hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. I, you know, I hadn't heard that in years until I just re-listened to it before making the show. And it, you know, it, it, it blew me away in, in ways I didn't expect. I mean, I had vague recollections of what this episode was about. I've always had it marked as like, yeah, if I'm going to do a replay episode, that's that's one of the ones that I should bring forward. But boy, you know, I had not actually listened to it. And when she starts talking about the NSA scandal, I realized, you know, the the absolute, you know, the amazing sort of <laughs> impact it could have on on today's discussion. And so. You know, I know that not everyone who listens to the show loves uh, comedian Lee Camp. He's featured on the show regularly. Uh, some people absolutely love him. Some people absolutely hate him. But I think he makes really good points a lot of the time. And I got to say that listening to this episode really made me think of one of his sort of more famous uh, rants that he's gone on. Actually, the, the theme song for his Moment of Clarity rants is actually based on this commentary he did. And so, rather than tell you bad, I'm just going to play it for you, and I think the, the connection I'm making is going to be pretty obvious.
5: You know the difference between the good and the evil in this world, the caring and the selfish, the Mel Gibson circa lethal weapon and the Mel Gibson circa apocalypto? The difference is that bad people have plans. They always have a fucking plan. Good people don't have plans or missions or agendas. They just stumble through life thinking we'll all treat each other right if given the chance. Evil people have dry erase boards and PowerPoint presentations and iPad apps to keep track of just how the evil's coming along, whether it needs a course correction because this evil, this quarter's evil is 3.5% lower than last quarter's. Good people don't have PowerPoints. Good people have Donuts and word jumbles. For example, the billionaire Koch brothers funded a politician, Scott Walker, to become governor of Wisconsin. They knew that when he became governor, he would fake a budget crisis and he would act like it was the biggest budget crisis to ever hit the planet Earth. He would then pass a law that would destroy collective bargaining, the linchpin for unions. Hidden in that same law would be a provision that allows the Koch brothers to buy state-owned utilities for almost nothing, with no oversight. Both these things would make insane amounts of money for the Koch brothers. And on top of that, without union donations, very few Democrats would be able to get elected against the billions in corporate donations going to Republicans. With mostly Republicans winning elections, the Koch brothers would be able to purchase more and more of America. Now that's what I call a fucking plan. So that's what the evil people were thinking. During all this time, what were the non-evil people thinking? Man, do I like ravioli, especially in cream sauce. If I work an extra hour at the shop, I bet I could buy two cans of ravioli instead of just the uno. That's what they were thinking. Bad people have plans. We don't have plans. I don't have a plan. You don't have a plan. Your plan was I'm going to watch internet videos. Meanwhile, Halliburton's plan was to cause a military coup in the sovereign country of Eritrea, a place neither you nor I ever knew existed. But they know, because they also have maps. They have dry erase boards and f***ing maps. I'm just saying the good people on this planet are never going to get the upper hand until we get some f***ing office supplies up in here.
0: So we've heard in this episode what can happen almost on a fundamental level to the the, the structure and, and psyche of you know our government and our collective ideas of what's appropriate when it comes to you know in this instance Congress's influence over the foreign policy of the country. You know we can see what happens when someone like Dick Cheney starts making plans and actually follows through on them over the course of a couple of decades and you know, it, it reminds me not only of, of Lee's uh, rant there about how good people don't have plans, but you know, I, I was I was interviewed on David Feldman's radio show recently, his comedy show, and one of the questions he asked me that that really stumped me was, you know, he felt like conservatives have been. You know they, they've they've been coming up with ideas. They might be terrible ideas. They might hurt people, but they've been coming up with ideas and they're pushing those ideas. And, and so progressives end up playing defense a lot. And so a lot of what we consider to be victories are just when we stop the conservatives from doing whatever terrible thing they're trying to do. With you know some progress on gay rights and, and you know some mediocre at best healthcare reform as notable exceptions to that. But but you know a lot of it has been. You know, honestly, over the last couple of decades, conservatives have been making slow but steady progress in a lot of ways, and progressives are just fighting against that. And so he was asking, you know, why do they have ideas and we don't? What are our new ideas? What are we trying to push to – I don't know if he used this sort of you know, phrasing, but you know, how, how have we been sort of trying to win by having – you know the the best de- defense being a strong offense that sort of concept and and I, I you know I was pretty stumped I don't remember what I said or where the conversation went from there but he asked that question I thought boy I don't know I mean we really have been playing defense for a while and and we haven't really been in the position to, or or the, even the mindset to push new progressive ideas and try to push the the entire sort of conversation of the country to progressive Ground, you know, we've always been fighting on sort of conservative grounds and just fighting against it. And, and so, you know, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll narrow this conversation to the idea of executive power run wild. It's especially timely because, you know, I've done several episodes on a variety of topics that all sort of center around this concept of executive power. So the question is, if we were to devise a plan, Not that we would be organized enough or capable of actually following through on the plan, but you know, let's say we were, what would a plan to try to pull back, claw back executive power and put it back where it belongs, what would that plan have to look like? It's definitely not an easy question, so don't feel bad if you don't feel like you have the answer. But this is sort of like a brainstorming session. There's no such thing as a wrong answer. Uh, If you have any thoughts on that, please let me know. Of course, the number to call in, leave a voicemail, is 202-999-3991. I I would love to hear any thoughts on this because... I mean there's so many fundamental problems that we're trying to deal with all at the same time money and politics uh, you know which leads to corrupt congress you know overly powerful executive branch etc cetera, etc cetera. but let's let's focus on this for a minute and see what we come up with so that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to those who called into the voicemail line, even though they didn't get played on today's episode. I, I will be back uh, after Netroots Nation. The next episode will be one day late because I'll be traveled, you know, the whole thing, logistics, etc. It'll be one day late, but the next episode will be brand new coming up soon. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, that it's absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com
2: black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Vintage burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you wanna meet. A dying room and a living room. The shadow bases the floor. We'll take you out.